This episode was recorded before the SAG after strike. Ready graphics? Ready theme? I'm Jesse Mullins. And I'm Lauren Milberger. And this is FYI, the Murphy Brown Podcast. And someone's playing like bad smooth jazz. And I miss that bad smooth jazz. I'm like, and then it's a scene. I'm like, man, that is my essence right there. And on today's episode, we'll be talking about season three, episode two, Brown and Blue. Hello. Well, hello there. Hello there. Welcome to, um as they might have called a very special episode of Murphy Brown. I was about to say a very special episode. We are of the generation. Yes, but also very special because we have a guest. Will the mystery guest please sign in? Oh, hey, everybody. Uh, my name is Tarek Davis, or Tarek Rashawn Davis, my full name. Um, I'm happy to be here. I'm so glad you're here. We've been talking for a while about, we love to have a guest, but this episode in particular, we wanted to have a guest. And mm. I guess with your particular expertise. Okay. Yeah. Uh, I don't know what expertise I have, but I'm, I'm, I'm happy to, uh, to provide whatever expertise I can. It was a very interesting episode to watch. Do you want to tell the audience a little bit about your, your background? Yeah, certainly. Um, yeah. Uh, I'm an actor, uh, improviser. I don't, I don't use the term comedian often because uh, I don't do stand-up, but, you know, uh, sure. I guess it could fit. Um. Yeah, I I've I, I studied and performed at Upright Citizens Brigade, at Second City, uh, Boom Chicago in Amsterdam, uh, for Freestyle of Supreme on Broadway. Yeah, uh, I met Amber uh, of the Amber Ruffin Show in Amsterdam. That's how we became friends. Um, so, uh, yeah, like I've been in the comedy scene for a long time. I know a lot of stand-ups and a lot of friends. And yeah, I started in the late 90s. Uh, so that was a different time and the standards mm-hmm. of comedy and what was acceptable and especially during, you know, doing comedy, which was considered quote unquote underground. Um, yeah, it was, you know, I say it was a different time. However, people have been here, um, <laughs> like black people didn't just exist. Women didn't just exist. The LGBT community, we yeah, like what? we've been around, and we've been objecting <laughs> to things that were objectionable, and I certainly have and was mm-hmm. and faced consequences of that. So yeah, uh, seeing this episode, it was interesting, um, in that regard. I appreciate you saying that. Something that I find interesting that I would love to talk to you about as we go through this is the idea of mm-hmm. the consequences being on those who take issue. Mm versus uh, the consequences on those who are causing yes. the issue. The, oh, yes. Oh, look at yes, that interesting book you have there. The are indeed real. Um, I, I'm holding up for, for, the, for your listeners. I'm holding up uh, my copy of the book Burn It Down by Maureen Ryan. And um, I highly recommend it, although I will say, at uh, least for myself and my therapist, she was like, yeah, there's a lot of triggers in there for you. So just be careful. Ooh, yeah. um, and if you have mm-hmm. had, if you are in the entertainment industry and if you have had to weather any kind of trauma, uh, whether it be physical, um, uh, mental, any kind of abuse, yeah, this is, uh, there's mm-hmm. a lot of trigger warnings in this book. Um, anyway, yeah, I, 
that's a fun fun note to start this podcast on. Mm-hmm. I'm I'm usually a much I'm usually a much more fun hey, guest. We love I'm a sorry fun guys. Note. I don't. That's a great uh, book. I I'm on the wait list at the library for that. Yeah, so yeah. I'll be reading it in three months, maybe. Mm-hmm. I haven't seen an episode of Murphy Brown in a long time, and there was something I very bet, yeah. first. It was mad comforting just to slip back into like the very early '90s television, and like I'm yeah. like, oh man, this is so sitcommy, and yeah. <laughs> like uh, it's. Yeah, this one particular is unabashedly. Love the, like it's great. The bumpers in between scenes of just like, you know, where they have B roll and someone's playing like bad smooth jazz. And I miss that bad smooth jazz of like and then it's a scene I'm yeah. like, man, that is my that is my <laughs> essence right there. Anyway, but yeah. the thing that I mm-hmm. noticed immediately, as soon as like the scene started, they made like an Early, uh, yeah, they made a reference to a bunch of stuff from the early '60s, and you know, I'm born. I was born in the late '70s, and so that the references they were making were before my time. They were my parents' time, so they were jokes that my parents would get. But I, being like what, either forced to watch a show because that's what they were watching, was like either like, all right, what does that mean? Or I would investigate myself, but. There was no, there is no uh, indication at all in that entire episode of like, let me explain this to this 12-year-old child, this joke about the Beatles or about laughing, you know, here comes the judge, right? Like, it's just the context of that, of these people of that time, they're all grown. They are all grown as hell, making grown jokes for their grown people, and you get it or you don't. And I kind of miss that. I'm like, oh, I don't, this is something specific about this very broad sitcom, but it's very specific that I don't feel like we do anymore. Oh, I think something that Murphy Brown does particularly well with that is that those references will also be character specific. So Jim, as the oldest one, makes the oldest references, like you're acknowledging. And then Corky's going to make a different reference that's for the the younger crowd at the time. And Miles will have no idea what's going on because he's 27. And I think that's something they're really smart about. They're intentionally referential, even within character. And I think it's a really interesting thing to bring up because I would say that there's a lot of things that at first I got in the context of jokes, right? Like I didn't know about Watergate. I knew about the jokes about Watergate. I knew that I knew that Nixon recorded himself yes. because of the jokes. Right. You know, like when I was uh, 14, I, I was making shredder jokes about Nixon. I might not have understood what they were, but I got it in the context. Right. right. And I think that that's something also that doesn't happen as much is that the assumption is that people aren't going to get it in the context or at least find out about it. Right. right? Um there's, a, there's also a great thing that is sort of a little bit like this that the cast of, sorry, the writers of Cheers said about writing comedy, which I really loved, which is that they would have, you know, sort of the highfalutin, you know, Frasier-like jokes on the show, and then they would have sort of the lowball right. jokes. So if they were going to have sort of a highfalutin, you know, Frasier-like joke, they would follow mm-hmm. it with a lowball joke. So the people that were laughing at the high joke were still laughing, and the people who didn't get the joke then got a joke that was for them, and then they were laughing, and now everyone's laughing, and no one pays attention right. that they didn't get it. And the best yep. is when Kelsey Grammer as Frazier would like turn into a, like laugh at a Sam Malone and like we would break that like oh you know actually but you know like those moments <laughs> are like it's like oh right this is why everybody chills at this spot and yeah it was for as broad as it was it was still very specific and very intelligent mm-hmm. very smart and now I'm like I don't 
I, you know, I don't want to cast aspersions on sitcoms today. Um, but I do know that personally, if I had a preference, like, oh, I'd much rather sit down with an episode of Murphy Brown than I would like Big Bang Theory mm-hmm. or just because yeah. I don't feel like, yeah, those characters are as specific as Miles, um, who's yeah. like, you know, what's the, uh, so yeah, you got Michael Chiklis coming in as the Andrew Dice Clay. <laughs> and yeah. Miles is like, yeah, I'm about that ratings. Also, this guy's very anti-Semitic. <laughs> like, like mm-hmm. that's a he brings oh, it up. Man, He's it like, it's an issue going. for me, but I'm a journalist. Um, and mm-hmm. yeah, it's like a it's a quick moment. If you don't catch it, it's it's gone. But yeah. Well, I think it's interesting the what you say about that they're very intelligent. They're very intelligent, and they don't assume their viewers are yeah. stupid. You know, I think you. Your, intel- your viewers are smart enough, one, to figure out a reference if they don't get it, to use context clues and understand it's a joke if they don't get to know that if Jim is saying this and it's probably a certain type of comedy that Jim would have found funny and so therefore that's the joke. Even smart enough to connect that about Miles, right. that he is a baby version of all of the other producers right. out there who have told him to just look past it because this is an- he's supposed to make ratings. He's supposed to make yeah. money. And so he's already, as a baby producer, like, I, this is offensive to me, but I'm letting yeah. it through. I think it also brings up that idea that we that is brought out now, which uh, is be getting a lot of backlash, as it should. It's like, oh, we need to represent both sides. We need mm. to be fair, a fair journalist, which I think is a little bit Murphy sort of, you know, has an issue That's with at the end with Murphy herself, right? But sometimes no. Yeah. Right? It's not the other side. It's the wrong side. And... Maybe we don't give them attention. Yeah. Um, who has the? Is it? Um, I'm gonna butcher his name. Eli. Uh, I can't remember his last name. Um, a famous author. He survived the Holocaust. Uh, oh, what? Why so? Yeah. No. Mm-hmm. Is it Eli Wasel? No. Um, no. But he talked about. He said the. I think it's him that I'm attributing the quote. I could be wrong, but about that you can't tolerate the intolerable. Any like. Mm. any healthy democratic mm-hmm. society can't tolerate the intolerable. And it's interesting, like this, this dice play character played beautifully by the commission. himself. thank you for bringing up the commission, Michael Chiklis of the shield <laughs> and the thing from fantastic four. Just like, I like to call, I think of Michael Chiklis as like Bruce Willis's mm-hmm. like, you know, uh, stocky, yes, stocky yes. younger brother, like just, yes. Yes. Like there's like a series yeah. of bald actors, like bald East Coast, Jersey, tough, <laughs> working class, uh, you know, uh-huh. like Lego build kind of guys. Like he is Lego build. It's absolutely he's Lego true. build. And I love him for mm-hmm. it. Like you could even see in this character what Lego hairpiece he would have been given, which just popped right on. It's definitely the Bruce Willis hair. I mean, yep. he's got. I think that's <laughs> they were receding around the same time. I I yeah. think they are re- related, but um, <laughs> but yeah, like he's he does a really good job. And this was, I think, I don't know, was this this it came out in nineteen ninety, so the commission was the eighty. So was this after the commission? It was before it. Before this is the before. Commish? So this is this is a very interesting time in his life because it's before the commission. But it's after he did Wired, ah. so he has just played John Belushi. Oh, right. But mm-hmm. the movie gets such backlash and controversy from the family, from everyone who knew him, and so 
it's his first big, huge thing. You know, he, was, he came from the theater. He didn't have that many credits. And it's, you know, just toast in the media. Was this before or after his appearance on Seinfeld? Oh, because that's a good question. I feel like it's before. He plays yeah. a similar character on Seinfeld mm-hmm. uh, where Jerry and Kramer, like, they get... They get like stranded in like the, yeah. the boonies, and he's like, he owns the house, and he's like, he like, he's like, hey, you can crash here, but like, I'm gonna come to New York, and y'all show me around as like a favor, and then like, he just gets drunk, and he's an offensive like New York tourist. And yes, I think this was before. This is before. I really think it's before because when I looked up his IMDb, I remember being surprised how few credits he had before yeah. this. It's interesting that he did before. The- Oh, go ahead. Oh, it's interesting he did the Belushi and then this and then also Seinfeld because that's such a specific casting mm-hmm. trope to be stuck in. And then to see him do the commission and shield and the thing like I have such a strong as a geek girl who goes to all the conventions. I have such a thing memory of him. Yeah. Like I remember watching the commission and shield and all those things. But he is the thing to me. I have yet to have a thing that matches him. He was a great thing. Um, mm-hmm. He was a great Ben Grimm. Um, oh. Yeah, he's. Michael Chiklis is a hell of an actor. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. Like, let me just say that. But you could see, like, he's he's not winking. No, as he's not. As big as this character no. is, like, he is in it. He is in that character. And then when he switches for the interview, and oh. it's like, ooh, this dude. This dude you know how devil. smart he is. Yeah. yeah. It's... Like, Carl is not wrong. He is the devil himself. Like, he is so intelligent and knows exactly what he's doing. Yeah. So I looked it up. So the Seinfeld episode is in 91. Ah. So uh, after this, he does like two things I've never heard of and then L.A. Law. <laughs> Where he plays a character named Jimmy Hoffs. Oh, come on. <laughs> Jimmy really? Hoffs? Uh, Jimmy Hoffs. Who do we get to play Jimmy Gee, Hoffs? I wonder who that could be. Oh, what about the Lego dude? <laughs> oh, we got to bring in the Lego guy to play Jimmy Hoffs. <laughs> I wonder who he could possibly be pretending to be. No one will get yeah. it. Gosh. Jimmy Hoffs. Yeah, it's a this is it's a it's an interesting episode. I have a lot of thoughts about Clay and like this depiction of Clay. And yeah, I was a journalism right? major, so I'm also like oh, awesome. the journalistic Ooh. the 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 aspect of objectivity and impartiality yeah. and journalistic ooh, integrity it's like ooh, uh, i got a lot I'm, of thoughts i'm on sorry sir you said what expertise are you bringing yeah we're hitting right. every, every every note here right now right right right. <laughs> well let's why don't we get into the the summary then yes shall we the the drudge of it and uh so you may not realize this but when we start this sort of mall we've been here before uh in an episode mm-hmm. where it was fyi for kids <laughs> So now we're with a bunch of people who don't know what the First Amendment is. Now, I'm curious what both of you think. Do you think that this is something that would happen today, considering how the First Amendment is so in the news? I mean, yeah, this is definitely like a Jimmy Kimmel thing. But like, do you think that this many people wouldn't know what the First Amendment was as don't know in this opening? Absolutely. Uh, Absolutely. And that's scary to me. I feel like Jordan Klepper just had a, a spot on this. You know. Oh, you're right. I think. Yeah, I feel like that. What am I saying? Of course. You know. Of course. Luckily, at the end of it, there are a few people who who know what the First Amendment is. Now, I do think that perhaps the change to today, yeah, is as opposed to all the people in this clip being like, no, I, I don't know, is it? I don't know. I feel like people would very strong, be very strong and wrong with their answers. Mm-hmm. Like I feel like you'd find people who would very 
very passionately and emphatically give the wrong answer. Yeah, I could because everyone doesn't want to look stupid now. I could see, I could see someone being like, you know, uh, being asked like, "Oh, would you vote for Trump?" Of course, he defends my First Amendment rights. What's the First Amendment? Say what? Yeah. <laughs> like, you yeah. know, like mm-hmm. in that same thought, like, yep. Uh, I mean, well, we we don't teach civic civics in the United States. Yes, we've talked about this a lot um, on the show, and it was something that I had not realized to the extent to which civics had been pulled from the curriculum until we started talking about it on the show. Yeah, no, we don't teach Mm -hmm. civics because civics requires context. Mm, Context gets into history. Um, Like, there's a a great thread. I don't know if you follow Michael Harriet. I don't. Former... I know of, but yeah. I don't follow. Final uh, former writer of the Root was a writer for uh, Amber Ruffin Show. He's like one of the most brilliant minds on social media. If you don't Ooh, know, I'll definitely check it out. Uh, follow Michael Harriet, but he Honest. posted a thread this morning or last night um, responding to Nikki Haley, who like. Uh, oh, Nikki I saw Haley. that thread. Yeah, but not. Yeah, not she, I mean, uh, Nikki Haley. I saw unfortunately, but yeah. oh, interesting. Uh, governor former governor of south carolina um she had posted something about um <gasps> yeah, how former it. president barack obama was like kind of a bad role model for uh anyone in the who's immigrated to the united states right and so michael harriet just unpacks the history of nikki haley by starting with the civil rights movement and how the civil rights movement made it possible because before that, there were, only, you know, especially in South Carolina, only a few um, countries were allowed to immigrate. And they were mostly mm-hmm. like of the, you know, um, white European variety and other countries were not. And it wasn't until after the civil rights movement that that was made possible by the black labor of the civil rights leaders of that moment. Right. And in South Carolina, like, there were these schools. Um, You've heard of the Daughters of the Confederacy, like, that were set up Mm -hmm. that taught an alternative aspect of history. But Nikki Haley's family, they came in, and her parent, her father specifically taught at HBU, while she went to one of these segregated schools and changed her name, which was not Nikki Haley, to Nikki, and learned all these was indoctrinated to all of this kind of, you know, very limited, uh, dare I say, false kind of history. You can say false, yeah. Yeah, false history um, that, you know, is basically what Ron DeSantis and all of these managers are trying to institute in all, over all public schools today. And that's what she learned, even though the reason she was able to immigrate yeah. to the United States anyway. And her father taught at a historically ba- black, you know, college. She still wow. comes out, changes her name. You don't know her ethnicity unless you actually do that research that we were talking about. And then mm-hmm. if you do, Hey, guess what? Yeah. You run into all this context and all these. And like, that is a civics class. Like Nikki Haley is a civics yeah. class, but there are people in power who don't want that, and I dare I say not even her, want that history, like, you know, unfolded out for students because it's just like... Oh, it's just that the idea of the people pushing against critical race theory are the ones who don't want their kids to see grandma in the history book 
throwing stones at a little black girl right. trying to go to school. You know, it's the we're too close now. No one wants to see the accurate history in which people that we now recognize are the assailants. I, I bring that story up in relation to the Murphy Brown was like that was my as a journalist major who was not a journalist. Let me be clear. I majored and then was like, I'm going to do comedy. Um, <laughs> but the thing that I would have loved to see if this was episode was like a two parter was Murphy Brown's a journalist. She doesn't ask this comedian who he is, what his relationship. She finds out. Yeah. And that's what we find out in that interview. Like, I love her editorializing, but I'm like, yo, read this dude for filth of like, you've had three divorces. Yeah. You've, your mother is a nun at so-and-so. Like, who is this guy? Like, uh, Go interview his mom. Yeah, exactly. Like, then you get to find out like, oh, <laughs> by reading him from filth and reading his factual history, we get to understand why this person is putting on this role, yeah. why this person is doing what they're doing. Mm-hmm. Play a clip from his first stand-up. Because I bet, like, if you watch a clip from Dice Clay's first stand-up, he's not Dice Clay. No, That's he's not. not. It's what name, started working. Right? Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So that that was my only thing. I'm like, yo, you're a journalist? Be a journalist. Yeah, this I do think that's moment. interesting because we have seen her succeed at that in other episodes up to this point. We've seen her be able to use her journalism skills to decimate somebody. And so it is interesting that this is the episode. This is the person having we... I know in the section we're about to get to, we talk about the King of Shock. We've met the King of Trash TV in Jerry Gold. Like we've met people who are misogynist and difficult and try to talk down to her and all of these things. And he's the one who's undone her to the point that her journalism skills flee. Right, right. So I also want more of that. And the first part of the episode is it's quirky. She's on the phone with her partner. Husband. Her husband. Yeah. They just uh, yeah, Cheryl. they just got married, so they're newlyweds. Right. So they're sort of in that's the first right. blush of love. That's sort of what the joke is, you know. <laughs> oh indeed. Yes. But my um, man is listening to the phone. Call. I know. Like, and I'm what? like this is a this is oh. an episode about misogyny, and I'm like, my man is just like This office is full of capital N nice guys. Scruff. And you watch them. You watch Frank do yeah. it, you watch Carl do it. These yeah. men who are like, I'm nice. Yeah. He literally does the, you know, when he confronts uh, the uh, Michael Chiklis's character, and because Michael Chiklis is hitting hitting on this woman who literally just like, all right, we're gonna Existed. have you walk across. She walks the in and it's there. I know it's so like, yeah. and then I walk, the Duchess, and then I pause, and then yeah. I go, yeah. yeah. It was, I was like, oh, this yeah. is beautiful. This is still happening. And then yeah, he starts hitting on her grossly, and then uh, I forget the character's name, Frank uh, Murphy Brown's best friend. Frank, he's like, I object and I stand for women's rights. And the woman's like, oh my goodness. And he's like, yeah. And then like this the yeah. grossest arm around the shoulder. And I'm oh, like, Frank, come on, y'all. And like, the whole audience just like laughs so hard they, at this. Like, mm-hmm. up, oh, he's using it to hit on her. They erupt. Mm-hmm. Yeah. They oh, erupt yeah. and cheer. And it's just like, that's the misogyny we like. Mm-hmm. Because he's so nice. We we talk a lot on the show about, you know, retrospect and like looking at things now that like make you go, oh, or make you cringe or something. And it's funny because uh, having now seen, you know, at least two seasons now, we're into the th- third season in order. You see a lot of that kind of, you know, fall away with Frank. 
And I don't know if it's because the times changed or they realized, but I think also as an actor, Joe just like, you can't get away with it because he comes across as a nice guy. Right. But the being on the phone yeah. thing is, you know, even though I think it plays like I'm your like little brother kind of a thing, it's so highly inappropriate. <laughs> it's still a grown man doing that. Yeah, and you can tell the actor is like, I always think of that, when every time I see that actor, I think of him in Street Hawk, but that's me. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I was hoping you would bring that up. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, but, oh, Joe, I love him so much. Yeah, he's, I mean, great, he was like, you know, one of those great, lovable character actors, but you could tell he's even like, he sells the joke, but it's like, that's not him. Yeah. You know, it's just like, mm-hmm. that's not him. We talk about that with Eldon the painter. When we first meet right. him, he's disgusting when we first that meet him. That shocked us. But because, yeah, but the actor is so lovable and so soft that eventually it evolved with him as well, but it's why we don't hate him. It's why he's not a complete creep. And my thing is like, all right, so this is, I, again, I was doing like, I watched Murphy Brown when it was on, but I was a kid and like, Mm -hmm. it was fleeting. Like it wasn't, um, it was like a show that I knew my parents would watch. I know they had like very special episodes that like, cause it was a show that people talked about. So I knew it was mm-hmm. on and I would watch it, but I don't have too many memories. Um, so I had to like do my research and I was like, oh, right. Murphy Brown had a past as an alcoholic. Yeah. Recovering alcoholic. That's the pilot. Yeah. She comes back from Betty mm-hmm. Ford. Yeah. She's a be- she's a baby boomer. Child mm-hmm. of the 60s, right? Yeah. So she's around my parents' yeah. age. And my thing is like, okay, so she doesn't like this Andrew Dice Clay wannabe. But did she listen to George Carlin? Did she listen to Red Fox, Bill Cosby? Did she like I'm those sure were the did. albums? Like we say Bill Cosby now, but like No, it was huge. I knew like my parents when they had their friends over or like family would come over and like, you know, I'd have to go to bed. I would, you know, they would all be downstairs and I would hear them listening to the albums. Like, every comedian has, like, the, oh, when my parents are around, let me listen to these albums. And so my thing is, like, all right, I, the nuance of that, like, I know that there's a difference between Andrew Dice Clay and Red Fox and George mm-hmm. Carlin and yeah. um, and Lenny Bruce. Mm-hmm. Very well, much. Huge is, difference. What does Murphy Brown think that difference mm-hmm. is? And I think there's something, there's an element to the Murphy Brown character as well that I think plays into this, which is that, you know, she approaches this as, oh, I haven't heard him before, but she's not easily rankled by these things. She's also always been one of the guys. So I absolutely believe she listened to George Carlin. Like she, nothing has bothered her up to this point. I think there's also something to, to that idea of, is it having to deal with the fact that this guy isn't treating it as an act when she meets him in person? Like, we, we yeah. have Miles say, maybe it's just an act. And then we get the, the comedy of it. I, I'm very curious along that point of what is it? Yeah. That, what about it is that this is the thing. This is the comedian that's too much for her. Because she's heard these kinds of jokes. She's before. heard, like, my thing, I get, like, let's pretend for a moment Murphy Brown was real. <laughs> and time travel is real. And three of us travel back in time specifically. And we are in that bar with Murphy Brown and those folks. I guarantee you within like, especially after they've had a few, it, not even five minutes, I will hear, you will hear, and you will hear a joke that is really offensive coming from all of them. Like, oh my God, yeah. oh, oh, like, mm-hmm. you know, have you heard the one or knock, knock, like 
they are going to tell, they're going to try to touch my hair. Like, there will be a joke. <laughs> like, Oh, I would punch Frank. I'm sure yeah. I would. <laughs> I would hear at some point, like, oh, you're so articulate. Like, there would be <gasps> a joke that I would hear. And, like, I would, you know, context, it's of the time. But what is this rocket guy saying that, like, you know, yeah. I totally get when she wants to strangle him when he's, like, when he propositions her. Yeah. But... Mm-hmm. They were in that room like, oh, But my. she's also been propositioned. Yeah, they were in that room like, oh, my God, how can he say that? And I'm like, you know, the comedian in me it? outside of the journalist is like, I got to hear them jokes now. I got to know. Mm-hmm. Well, this might be an interesting time then. I have a quote that I can play for everybody. I was mm. going to use it at the end of my uh, free speech Lenny Bruce thing. But I think it's definitely relevant to this of what George Carlin has to say about Andrew Dice Clay. Oh. Go ahead. Yeah, well, go what ahead. What I love before you play it is we're talking about, you know, the of the time and so on. But this clip of George Carlin made the rounds around Chappelle yes. recently. Like, it's a whole generation of people discovered this quote very recently because of current situations. Yes. But this was about Andrew Dice Clay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wow. Can't wait to hear this. Many people will bring up Carlin to defend people like Chappelle or a comedian that supposedly gets canceled. And it's like, Mm -hmm. no, Carlin didn't actually believe what you think he believed. So you don't know Carlin. But what I think is great about this clip is that I also think that it, barring a few things, still felt very relevant. I would defend to the death his right to do everything he does. The thing that that I find unusual, and it's, you know, it's not a criticism so much, but his targets are underdogs. And comedy traditionally has picked on people in power, people who abuse their power. Uh, women and gays and immigrants are kind of, to my way of thinking, underdogs. And, um, you know, he ought to be careful because he's Jewish. And a lot of the people who want to pick on these kind of groups, the Jews are on that list a little further. You got women, gays, <laughs> blah, 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 and then suddenly you find Jews. And, and Andrew, suddenly Andrew's arrested. Yeah, so, uh, you know, I, I mean, obviously he should do what he wants. And uh, Why does he get away with it, do you think, then? Well, because we have never laughed at jokes about the Well, poor. he's appealing. I think he's appealing largely. I think his core audience are young white males who are threatened by these groups. I think a lot of these guys aren't sure of their manhood because that's a problem when you're going in through adolescence. You know, am I really? Am I, could I be? I hope I'm not one of them. And the women who assert themselves and are competent are a threat to these men, and so are immigrants in terms of jobs and, and, uh, and, and the so-called. So that's why we as an audience then will laugh. I, you say we. I don't think you're I mean, either, I don't know. But I, I mean think the you're, collective that, we. I think that's what, what is at the core of that experience that takes place in these arenas is a certain, uh, a, you know, a, a sharing of, of uh, anger and rage at, at, these, at these targets. And I'm sure Andrew isn't that angry at them. I'm sure he's playing it as a comic. Well said. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, yeah, the, uh, I would also, I want to put Richard Pryor in that category as well. Please do, yes. think they know. And yes. then really, it's just like, if you ever saw Richard Pryor in an interview, or actually just watch his stand-up, but if you know, like, mm-hmm. a very sensitive, hurt soul. And i very, very aware. aware. I would say the same with Carlin. Mm-hmm. Like, one of the reasons, like, they are in my, like, you know, if I had a Mount Rushmore, right? Like, is because they were very, very vulnerable and very aware of who they were punching, if they were ever throwing punches at all. 90% of the time, those punches would always land back at themselves. But somebody like Clay, I'm like, his name is Andrew Dice Clay. His stage name is. Don't believe it, that's his real name. No. But his persona was like, I grew up thinking, oh, Andrew Dice Clay, he's that Italian guy, right? Like, 
because that was the you know if we're thinking of broad stereotypes yeah or the nursery was, rhyme guy right like, right that was the the leather jacket yeah, the hair yeah. slicked back this guy like he's got a pinky ring and he's like that is mm-hmm. a very specific i'm from jersey so that's a very specific oh same you are conjuring a very specific guy very specific role mm-hmm. and to know and like to hear carl and be like no he's a jewish guy and he should be careful because they are on that list of underdogs. It's like, yeah, no, I think he's aware of that. I think Andrew Dice Clay was very mm-hmm. aware of who he really was and who he was talking to. Mm-hmm. And in relation to Chappelle, who I used to revere, um, similar to Cosby, like I, I hate this graveyard of comedians I used to revere. And then I'm like, yeah. the thing that to me, the uh, I guess where I would differentiate from Carl, I would agree, but I would differentiate of like, I get upset, I get offended when I see like, I know you're smarter than you are, and you're not playing to your intelligence. Mm, yeah. Yep. Yeah, it's easy, easy jokes, jokes, or you're not finishing the thought. <laughs> you are like with Chappelle. I see Chappelle purposely putting up a blind spot because, I, and I feel like for him, he's just like he's one of the smartest comics brains out there, but he will not. He refuses to remove this like blind spot keeping him from seeing like the potential harm yeah that trans folks can experience because of his jokes the uh, the potential harm and alienation mm-hmm. that his joke can have he's just like ah, i got the right to tell the joke and it's just like no one's saying you don't fam you're smarter than that open your spectrum and see like yeah follow that thought i can tell these jokes but what else because you do that with other, you do that with black folks. You do that mm-hmm. with the black jokes. Why can't you do it with this category of people? You're not playing to the top of your intelligence. Andrew Dice Clay. I saw. I am a fan of the movie Ford Fairlane, and I remember seeing that and being like, and I remember there was a huge resistance of that film because of his toxic personality, and he's a good actor. Yeah. And I'm watching this, and I'm like, you're a good actor. You're funny. He doesn't do those jokes. Most of those jokes in that movie. You can be likable. What are you doing? You are making a choice to punch down. Mm-hmm. You are making a choice. And when it becomes clear yeah. that it's a choice, for me, that's when it's a, you become Pensada non grata and you go into the comedian graveyard. Well, and it's also giving me, not to uh, take an even darker sidebar, but the the Andrew Tate of it all. Mm. The uh, picking the an audience that is going to be aggressively loyal to you because they think they're the ones who are threatened. And this idea of, well, if we just point at everything that's threatening our identity, then we'll be safe over here because everyone's too busy screaming at that. And I have a loyal group of people who think I'm the only one defending them. Yeah. I also think, you know, it's pretty dangerous as a Jew. I appreciated what Carlin brought up, particularly because I think that there, and this happens in, you know, across all minority groups or all people who, you know, are seen as such that, I mean, people refer to as the self-hating Jew, but this idea that like, you know, oh, you're not going to get me. I'm, I'm one of you. Right. That happened in Nazi Germany. Right. Oh, they're not going to come for me. They're going to come for the other people. Right. And then at the end they do. Right. You weren't, you were never any different. And there was actually a New York times article, um, that I found that referred to uh, the audience at his Madison Square Garden concert as just a sea of white men, you know, with their fists up in the air and it looked like a Nazi party. Yeah. 
And, you know, I would say the same thing with Nikki Haley. Like, to bring it back to her, like, oh, yeah. you think you're one of them. First off, we need to define what is one of them. Like, it's typically straight, it's typically white, it's typically male, um, and, like, and Christian, right? Like, that's yeah, yes. that's the, you know, like, you you aren't, you don't have an Islamic name, you don't have uh, a Jewish surname, right? Like, you erase those parts of your ethnic or cultural identity to blend into this uh, American idea of what is the straight Christian macho mm-hmm. alpha male white male and if you can't be those like Nikki Haley then you fit yourself as close to that proximity as power a proximity of power than you can and then you like focus it like Ron DeSantis DeSantis is an Italian last name there was a moment when Italians yeah. were like, yep. you know, for me, there I forget who wrote, offered the book, but The History of Whiteness, fascinating book. And it's just like, yeah, like, um, like Jewish people weren't considered white. And like, that's a debate. That's a battle right now you see happening. Like, that's on TikTok right now. That's on TikTok. Yeah. With, within and, the Jewish community themselves, right? right? Like, what is the definition of race? Mm-hmm. Right. And not that, you know, Jews aren't a monolith. No one is a monolith. You can have your own, you know, ideas about everything. And I, I respect that. Right. But it's it's the nuance of it within the community as well. And Absolutely. I mean, I don't know where in New Jersey you're from, but um, my mother is from Milburn. I'm from Scotch oh, Plains. I'm from Scotch Plains. Wait, what? I'm from Scotch Plains, New Jersey. How are you from Scotch Plains, New Jersey? <laughs> Wait, what? Oh, seven, oh, seven, six. Did we go to Zip high school code. together and didn't know it? Shut up. Did, wait, did you go to Scotch Plains Family High School? Yes, I did. What years? Oh, this is going to be so oh. embarrassing if we know each other. It's not embarrassing. Um, it's amazing. It's so funny because when you said you were from New Jersey, I was like, oh, wouldn't it be funny if like we were from... Um, I graduated Are you 90, for real? I graduated in 95. You graduated in 95? I graduated in 97. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> you know my brother. Who's your brother? Maybe Michael Milberger, he was on a varsity. Uh, he was younger than you a little bit, but oh my god! <laughs> Are we related? Like, <laughs> who's your mom? Um, who's your mom? Oh my god! This is so crazy. I know Michael Milberger. This is wild. Yeah, I old Spiffy High. Spiffy High. I, I did they have the Mr. Spiffy contest when you were still there? Because I don't I was, remember. I was a big geek. Yeah. I had no friends. That probably, <laughs> yeah. Same girl. Uh, I grew up in Union County, Scotch Plains. Yes, this is insane. This is insane, Lord. I, know. I, <laughs> I have you never grew met up any- in Scotch Plains. The only person that I have ever met from Scotch Plains is Mark Shaman. I know that name. Well, he he wrote with Amber, Amber something like it hot. He did all the music and the lyrics. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Holy shit. Yeah. And when I was 16, I wrote him a fan letter. Yep. When I found out he was from Scotch Plains. And he wrote me back. Like, I'm, we became pen pals. He's the nicest well, guy. Now like, I'm going to write Mike Sherman. Uh, <laughs> uh, t- Mark Shaman, yes. Mark Shaman. And I'm going to be like, yo. Uh, there is a Scotch Plains trifecta going on right now. Seriously. This is going on the Patreon, y'all. This is too important. 
So we meet Murphy's secretary, who seems like the perfect secretary, but actually she's a, an escapee from an insane asylum, which, you know, we're waiting for that joke to happen. Here's the deal with the secretaries. The more normal they appear up front, the more insane their problem's going to be. That is the trope of the show. Yeah. Yeah, I forgot that that was a... We had brought up Seinfeld earlier, but like Kramer was made in the Seinfeld episode, made a cameo. Yes. As a Murphy Brown secretary. Mm-hmm. And... I was like, oh, right. And it's a very weird meta joke uh, that, like, you know, if I, if I think about it too hard, it'll start to break my brain, you know? I will say, we've seen a lot of crazy secretaries. I'm just saying at this point, she seems more than capable. So let's just keep her medicated. She seems great. It That scene is a little terrifying. She's doing that really capable job. And Murphy's like, we're going to have lunch. And then two dudes, I don't care whether they're wearing out white outfits. Yeah. Just like, mm-hmm. yeah, we got to drag this lady back. I don't buy that brothers being like, yeah, she was in a plain cockpit. No, 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 no. No, there was an application process. There were references that were searched. That office just can't let this woman be hauled well, Wait a off. second. You, you've seen Secret of My Success, right? Where he just goes in an empty office, uh, which is based right? on <laughs> like some executive who was a, or a Spielberg, I think, right? Who like goes right. and was like, I work here now. It it wasn't necessarily in the cockpit. I think it was in the um, the tower, right? So maybe somehow right. she just got herself into the tower. I, that kind of believable. Here's the deal: if Christina Applegate can become a fashion designer after the babysitter dies, there anyone you go. can do anything. We start our meeting with Murphy, and she uh, wants to interview this guy named Tony Rocket, who we've been alluding to the king of shock. And uh, Corky is actually for it. Everyone is against it because she trusts Murphy. But of course, we find out that Murphy actually has not listened to the cassette. I believe the title of the album is called On All Fours, just to give everyone. Sure is. And I thought it was interesting that Frank brings up the the fact that we have, you know, NEA grant issues, flag burning. Because when I was reading a little bit on Andrew Dice Clay, something that surprised me was that there were these letters to the New York Times that was talking about, mostly from conservatives who were saying, well, you know, if liberals are so upset about Andrew Dice Clay, maybe uh, he should just say he's a performance artist like, a Karen Finley like really a f- mm-hmm. so much like what about like today of like oh well if this is what you really think it just fe- felt so oh it's the same song again yeah mm-hmm. just different lyrics different um, lyrics yeah history doesn't repeat but it does rhyme oh yeah so good one uh Jim brings up censorship we get a whole sort of you know special episode about what censorship can do, the First Amendment, why we're here today. Uh, Miles isn't sold, but Murphy's going to start her research. Uh, Frank tells her not to listen to it on an empty stomach. And she's, <laughs> this is when Murphy says, well, that she's a big girl and it takes a lot to shock her. So she thinks. So she thinks. Yeah. So super quick, I am just going to talk about the history, which is not really like the full history of like how we got here with stand-up, just because I've done a lot of research on Lenny Bruce Mm-hmm. But what I think is really interesting is that even Carlin, who looked up to Lenny Bruce, says that when he was younger, he was like, oh, man, we're getting arrested together. This is great. And Lenny was like, no, 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 that's not the goal. Right. Like, I'm not right. here to shock. I'm not here to get arrested. I just want to do comedy. I just want to tell the truth. Right. And this is just getting in the way. The goal is not to get arrested because then I can't work. Because that's yeah. eventually what happened to him is that he get, got arrested so much Anything from, you know, talking about the lewd sexual acts of the Pope, talking about race, to saying the word schmuck, which, like, today would 
be considered. I mean, most people think it means stupid, right? Like it's yeah. not even right, like yeah. on anyone's radar. But right. what I found out, which was interesting, was that in 1957, there was a landmark uh, case in the Supreme Court, which is around the time when you start to get what we know as modern stand-up, like late 50s into the 60s. It was Roth versus United States saying that anything obscene was not constitutionally protected speech because it wasn't a redeeming social importance. <laughs> And that what the people of the sort of, you know, areas in which these people were being obscene, they were the ones who were going to say what was considered obscene. So, like, Lenny Bruce gets arrested in Chicago because Chicago's cops are mostly Irish Catholic and he's making fun of the Pope. Cardinal Spellman in the 60s, who pretty much did this with movies and anything, is one of the reasons why Lenny Bruce was arrested at the Cafe Agogo in the mid-60s, which then eventually, you know, he was arrested then with the owner of the Cafe Agogo. So here you have the owner is arrested. So, so Lenny Bruce gets blacklisted. So no one can perform in a certain way, whether it's saying dirty words or just talking about sort of, you know, dirty, or as they called them, sick comedians which is interesting because the other side of that, which really surprised me was they were like, oh, well, these are well comedians, which is, but also yeah. what was interesting was that even though Lenny Bruce, Mart Saul, Lenny Berman are gonna be sort of the poster child of the first amendment, and Lenny's really the only one who's really getting sort of mostly arrested, they're still using the word sick for people like Bob Newhart because he's yeah. mocking historical figures or political figures, which like today yeah. is like Bob Newhart? Nichols and May, which you don't right. think of being like offensive in the sense of like someone like a Lenny Bruce. Yeah. You also have a cabaret license in New York that if you don't have your cabaret license, you can't perform. And of course, that started because of jazz in the 20s. And it really was just a, another form of racism. Well, we can mm -hmm. just pick and choose who gets a license. Exactly. Like, we could talk for hours about the fact that like Lenny Bruce got to be in the position of being arrested to begin with. Yeah. Which is his own level of privilege. Like, there are plenty of people who wouldn't have even made it to the point of being arrested. Because he's able to perform in white spaces, right? right, right. right? Like, yes. you have, you know, right. Dick Gregory and you have, uh, we, we talked about Red Fox, right? But, like, they're mm -hmm. not allowed to be in a lot of the spaces that Lenny Bruce is allowed to be in. So yeah. even though they're probably saying similar things. And, I mean, Red Fox's comedy albums were really what, you know, got him more attention. But that was something that was sold, yeah. like, you know, even in Mrs. Maisel, right? She buys a Red Fox mm -hmm. album in the basement. She can't buy yeah. it upstairs. Right. So it's right. literally underground. <laughs> yeah. People forget, like, you know, I think people, like, young Red Fox was a young guy at some point. Yeah. Like, when Sanford and Son aired, he was, even though they made him look older, but he was in his 50s. Oh, like, man, he I was, always forget that. He had had, he had, had a career. Um, and he was, like, just one of the more well-known, like, there, you know, you can, like, the history of black comedy is fascinating in itself with Dick Gregory, but you have Mom mm -hmm. Mabley and, um, you know, who's the out queer woman, you know, but like mm -hmm. telling, right? Like, uh, but like, I saw the one man show with Joe Morton who played Dick Gregory. Oh, wow. It was brilliant. But like him finally getting a stand up spot at the Playboy Mansion. Yes. Yeah. Was a big deal. Yeah. You know, the Dick Gregory that that stand up to the Dick Gregory we knew in his later years, who's the you know, would fast and, you know, was an activist, two different people. Mm -hmm. A lot of black stand-ups then, like you wore a suit, you wore a tie. Carlin was in that tradition. 
even though Carlin was Irish Catholic, like suit, tie. And then there was a uh, really intentional break of like, yo, we can't do this anymore. You know, I, I know the 60s is always brought up as such a period, but it was really, I don't think people really have a context of just how strict it really was yeah conservative yeah. america was and it really all stems from this court case right to because of what was happening in the culture well, and it's all it's all holding on to this this desperate the emphasis on desperate attempt to hold on to a status quo that had been sold to them. It wasn't right. even the reality of life that they were trying to hold on. It was on, from this concept and this marketing of the 1950s that they yeah. had been told was ideal life that wasn't actually even true for the majority yeah. of the population. And that's what Lenny Press Bruce wanted to do, right? He wanted to be like, this is really what we're all talking about, right? Like, this is really what's happening yeah. in the world. Uh, they're just not letting you hear it. And the, yeah. the sad part about him, you know, at least a lot of people we're talking about were able to have a career later on or had a career, you know, younger people than the people we're talking about because of people like Dick Gregory and Lenny Bruce. But Lenny Bruce dies in 66. Yeah. And then in 67, New York gets rid of the whole cabaret license. Yeah. Yeah. And then things just sort of, you know, propel from there. And then by 1971, you have Cohen versus California, which is about a man who wore fuck the draft shirt to court and got arrested and they brought that up and that's where you get the idea uh, or the phrase I should say of you know one man's um I'm gonna mess it up one man's you know obsceneness is another man's lyric that's not the the quote mm -hmm. but like you know yeah. it's all in the eye of the mm -hmm. beholder but that court case in 71 was about the idea well we can't censor that's what the first amendment is about because you can get to the point which when we talk about DeSantis today is that then you could possibly censor things that you don't believe in just because you don't believe in it because it's all based yep. on the perception and of you in that moment and not of the law. Right. Which which brings to me which is why this Murphy episode is so interesting like all those characters live through everything you're talking yeah. about. Mhm. Mm they lived through that. They have those albums. So what Again, like, yeah, like what, why all of a sudden like this blindness to who you actually are when confronted with this character? Murphy, you're a journalist. Dismantle this guy like you would anyone else. Like, Murphy, you've talked to war criminals. Right. I mean, could we say that like <laughs> murderers, her ego gets in the way in the sense that like she's just so upset that she has to do I the think. interview that she just puts on blinders, well, which is why she explodes? And this is also something that I've referenced in the past with third wave feminism. Like she is also a white woman who has the convenience of not having everything directly affect right. her. And this yeah, she's not used to that. Affects her. Right. Like this is something where she's the one being attacked and it's easier to be a journalist and be objective when you can look at all the sides and they aren't specifically about your body and your person. This is someone who is making she says the female gender, like a kicking post. Totally. She is the one who is, it's personal now in a way that not everything always is that she covers because she is someone who has played the boys club and has risen to a point where she gets to cover everything. And it's not always about her. No, it's not. And I think it's a great point. I think she's also, I want to say, there's got to be a better word than victim. Uh, but they all are. They are kind of subjects of, so the 80s to me is an interesting, like the 80s is the period of my like consciousness, right? Yeah. Like it's my childhood. It's like what I, like when I started like seeing things and the 90s was like my teen years into my young adulthood. Um, 
but the 80s when i i remember there were you know and i'm, I'm gonna try i, I don't want to keep burning time but like I remember there was like a real fascination with the fifties in the eighties. Yeah. Like every, mm. like mayonnaise commercial, every mayonnaise commercial was like a doo-wop, like Dijonet. Like it was all like everyone. The raisins. Was, yeah. Like, right. The, like. Oh, the raisins. The raisins. It was a real love for like the fifties and early sixties and kind of that, that polished sold idea. And. I remember when the 90s came along and like, you know, you had the riots in L.A. and O.J., then like, you know, and JFK with Oliver Stone. And then there was like a, nah, let's really talk about the 60s. Right. Mm -hmm. And I feel like this period watching that newsroom on Murphy Brown, watching FYI and seeing like there's nary a brown face there. Mm That the 80s was, you know, that's when Reagan was in power. Uh, and Bush and it was 80s was a lot was locking down I feel like a locking down a lot of people who went through the 50s and 60s and trying to like no now we're adults yeah yuppies right like all the the hippies were now yuppies all the hippies are now yuppies and we're kind of shunning whatever revolutionary or radical uh, experiences they had in their youth and I feel like, yeah, the 60s was tumultuous. Yeah, 50s was conservative. 60s was a lot of, tum- like, just upheaval. And the 70s was everybody getting high and partying and discoing to try to mm-hmm. live through the trauma of the 60s. Mm-hmm. And then the 80s was like, yep. okay, but now we got to pay bills and I actually yeah. like making money and want property. To me, like, when I when I looked at the trajectory from, like, post-World War II to today, everything kind of makes sense in that regard and like why we're repeating what we are repeating today and why someone like Trump or DeSantis can rise to power is because using Murphy Brown's example, she is like a victim of that, of that amnesia. Mm -hmm. And so when you get a character who's anachronistic like this Andrew Dice Clay character, who is very conservative, but is also radical at the same time, he doesn't make sense. Oh, that's a really good point. Yeah. He doesn't fit into a like, box oh, you, for her, so she's confused. Yeah, you don't make yeah. sense for me. If you're telling those jokes and you're my boss, oh, <laughs> that's a good one. Mm-hmm. But if you're telling those jokes and then you're grabbing your crotch and like, oh, wait, what? You don't, mm-hmm. you don't fit in this time period. And I think that's another reason why Andrew Dice Clay again, I'm not a fan of, but why he rankled so many white people is because, like, Mm -hmm. you're not... Don't you see what we're all doing right now? Like, we all put the suits back on and the... Mm. And, like, you're with the fringes. You're with the Nazis. Like, we don't openly acknowledge those guys. Well, now we do, because we ignored them and, like, they were kept on the fringes of our amnesia. And then when Barack Obama became president, people lost their minds and the floodgates opened murphy brown she like didn't she have an episode where she was smoking weed yeah but she had cancer uh so Mm -hmm. all right yeah so it uh, uh. but also yeah let's remember that she you know murphy brown got arrested at the at the democratic national convention like she was she was one of the young change makers but now is 
one of the old like one of the old guard. She's becoming the old guard. Like when we first they, there's a flashback to like when she first gets the job and she's dressed like Annie Hall and she's got big, huge curly hair like Diane Cannon. <laughs> and, you know, she's just like all over the place. And they're like, oh, we don't know if we should hire this woman with the crazy hair. But I also think that part of Murphy and not in this particular episode is someone who kind of look, looks around and goes, wait, weren't we radicals? Like, hey, I'm still here. Like, yeah. And that all of her sort of cohorts have moved on to become sort of adults. And you yeah. know, she she still wants to be a radical. Thank you so much for joining us for this episode. We had so much fun talking with Tarek that this is going to be another part two episode. As you can tell, it's three people who love to chat with each other. So we wanted to make sure that we don't take out too much of that great chatter. So we think that this is a really exciting opportunity to hear a little bit more, to go a little bit more in depth into what we're talking about. In fact, you're not even gonna have to wait two weeks. We're gonna post this on Thursday. So please definitely tune in. Tarek had some wonderful things to say, and we don't want you to miss any of it. No, we're really looking forward to hearing the rest of this. I also wanted to add a little bit for people who maybe aren't as familiar with Andrew Dice Clay to kind of, you know, bring you into the next part. But I didn't get a chance to read from this New York Times review that I think is very telling, is that in it, it says that Andrew Dice Clay refers to himself as the most vulgar, vicious comic ever to walk the face of the earth. I don't know. I just feel like he's compensating for something, but that's fine. Yes. Now, I'm not saying that that's true, but I think it's important to, to highlight that that's what he thinks of himself. I think if, if you have to say that about yourself, perhaps uh, you're not meeting your goals. Perhaps. So we will see. But we'll talk more about yes, that. Yes, we in will part for two. part two. And <laughs> and also remember that you can follow along with us and watch this episode on the Internet Archive. The link is on our website. And be sure to follow us on social media at Murphy Brown Pod. We'll see you next time for another edition of FYI, the Murphy Brown Podcast. Mm-hmm.